Blog Talk Radio. Adam, can you hear me? Tommy, can you hear me? Yep, that's me. All right. Let's do a second test here. Let's see if I can hear my guest and he can hear me. Yes, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Can you hear me? Oh, hot damn. We have a show. <laughs> All right. I'm not sure what happened there, but um, we uh, – we, as happens with Blog Talk Radio from time to time, there are technical difficulties. Uh, the, the, the difficulty being I couldn't hear anything and no one could hear me. I mean, and you could have a show without a host. I just don't know how well it would go. But we're here. It's TV party tonight. We will be discussing Chef's Table, and I am your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Rattledge. And my guest tonight, who can hear me, and I can hear him, is uh, Mark Ross. How you doing, Mark? Oh, not too bad. And you? <laughs> a little, a little sweaty, a little frantic, a little annoyed. But other than that, I'm doing just dandy. Well, just like, uh, just like in the kitchen, it's never how bad you fuck up. It's always how you bounce back. Indeed. Speaking of bouncing back, let's let let's let's do that now. I uh, at the beginning of this year. I had been watching the documentary Cooked, the four-part documentary on Netflix uh, put out by Michael Pollan, whose books I I very much enjoy. And I happened to mention, just sort of offhandedly on Facebook, I was like, hey, this is something I think I'd like to talk about. And uh, you and some others immediately answered the call uh, wanting to talk about it. And I said, okay, well, I've got somebody – in mind for this, but uh, if you're really interested in talking about another food documentary series on Netflix, I've got one in mind later in the year. Um, and, and that brings us to tonight. I had seen Chef's Table in the queue on Netflix. I really didn't know anything about it, but I'm, I'm a huge fan of food television competition shows. I like to watch them with my wife and my daughter. Uh, I, I'm into it. Uh, just in general, I watch a lot of food documentaries. So when I saw it, I said, okay, well, I think I want to talk about this one too, and I'm going to pick somebody else who was who was into it. What made you decide to answer the call, Mr. Roth? Why did you want to jump into the podcast world and talk chef's table? Well, I was a professional chef for 14 years, so I like to look at it from time to time and exercise my brain, so to speak. (laughs) 
Um, tell us a little bit about your experience as a chef. Where did you work? What kind of cuisine uh, did you uh, happen to be cooking? And uh, what happened? How come you're now you're no longer a chef? Uh, well, the the last question is the easiest one. Just burnout, really. Uh, working <laughs> as a chef in a kitchen for as long as I have, the hours just kind of get to you. No such thing as a sick day. No real vacation days. It, you're up. You're in the game. Sure. Uh, I in my career, I've run the gambit from. Uh, when I was 15, working at a pizzeria, uh, all the way up to my last job, working in uh, a fine dining Italian establishment. Uh, Outstanding. Almost everywhere in between. Now, uh, did you stay in the New York area, um, or did you migrate around the country? Did you travel across the world? Where did you work? Uh, mostly in the South, actually. Uh, I had my first uh, culinary class in South Carolina, ended up going to Johnson and Wales back when it was still in Charleston and mainly stayed around the Charlotte Metro area. Okay. Now, had you heard of chef's table when I, uh, when I asked you to talk about this with me, did you know what it was? It showed up in my queue, just like with you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Very good. Um, I have never, other than Dan Barber, uh, who I feel like I saw him on like a Top Chef or uh, something else, um, and, and I might be imagining that, but I feel like I've heard of Dan Barber before, but I have no idea who the rest of these people are. Uh, this is a six-episode season, and we're only doing season one tonight, and it's uh, Massimo Bacchiora, Dan Barber, Francis Malman. Oh, boy, do I have a lot to say about him. Uh, Nikki <laughs> Nakayama, Ben Shuri, and Magnus Nilsson, who look like he should be playing yeah, guitar in that name. Flames. Yeah, that's an awesome name. Um, I ever as I was watching the episode, actually, before we, we went live tonight, uh, and I just kept yelling out randomly, Magnus Nilsson from Gothenburg, Sweden. Uh, is actually <laughs> in the band in flames or from Goat's Gothenburg, but neither here nor there. Um, so, yeah, I, I had no really real foreknowledge of what this was. I just sort of, you know, saw it there, popped it on. And I'll tell you, had it not started with Massimo Batura, I don't know if I would have gotten through all of it. That's not to say it's a bad series, but like if it had started with Francis Malman, I don't know if I would have kept watching. What a douchebag! Uh, but Massimo had, <laughs> had Massimo had this uh, uh, charisma about him, and this sort of boyish enthusiasm. I was really into his story, and it hooked me to watch the rest of the series. Just in general, what did you? Uh, we're gonna break these down episode by episode, chef by chef. But as just a sort of a general approach to this thing, what did you think of Chef's Table? It was very much a documentary. It was meant to highlight uh, the best that each individual had to offer, uh, very generic in terms of uh, their 
their formative years, how they learned to cook. I think uh, I think actually Massimo was probably the most detailed. Um, the dishes at the end just <laughs> it 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 felt like a chef's money shot on my screen. <laughs> you know, I was debating how much I wanted to use the term food porn uh, <laughs> tonight. And I, and I have to say, that's always the best part of any cooking show. You know, if I'm watching, like, uh, Guy Fieri's Diners, Drive, uh, Diners, Dives, and whatever the hell it's called, um, Diners, Driving, and Dives, it's always that close-up shot of the food or, or, or Top Chef. You know, where you've watched them, you know, make the sausage and everything, and then finally they do that one shot of the food right before the judges taste it. And that's always the best part of it for me. You know, I I yeah. very much <laughs> love the, the visual aspect of the food on screen, more so than any other part of, of, of any type of any of these type of cooking shows. And it was no different with Chef's Table. I um I didn't get to watch the entire episode of the Magnus Nilsson one just because time ran away from me this week, but I fast forwarded to the very end because that's the part that's the part I most look forward to. At the end of the episode, they just run through every dish that they've featured in the episode, and they all have such fun names, especially like Massimo Batura. You know, like oops, I dropped the lemon tart. You know, shit like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that that story had uh, to be my favorite out of the entire series. The entire series. Yeah, I, I love that. I look. I I don't know art, and I and I don't know cooking, but I know what I like. And I'm and and as somebody who does you know dabble in creative efforts such such as the world of podcasting, I really enjoy their creative approach to food, and you know and some of the more eccentric characters in chef's table made the show more enjoyable for me. Uh, you know, again, I go back to Massimo who we'll, we'll just get into talking about him. Um, when he, it just that whole, that story where it's like the, the one cook uh, chef dropped it and he was like, Oh my, and he was just, just beating himself up over, Oh my God, I dropped the lemon tart. And, and it was kind of like, no, stop. It's beautiful. Let's recreate that on the plate. <laughs> You know, it's 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 genius and madness. There's a fine line. Um, now, let me ask you: had had you heard of any of these people before you watched this show? I've actually heard of Dan Barber before. Uh, everyone else, though, not really. Okay. If I if I had ever heard of Magnus before, I know I would have. <laughs> I would have known that. Sure. Let's get into the first episode here, Mr. Massimo Battura, whose story is essentially he has a restaurant in Italy. Um, and, and correct me if I'm if I'm a little sketch on detail here, but uh, I think the the thing about his first restaurant is he's making a traditional Italian cuisine, but he's doing it in a different style, a style that's sort of upending the tradition. And he leaves that restaurant. He goes to New York. He meets with the woman that en- that ends up becoming his wife. He goes back to Italy. There's a detour into France. Back to Italy again, where he opens up a Siria Frances- uh, Francescana. And again, 
we have this situation where he's doing his own take on traditional Italian cooking. And at first it's, you know, it's not what people want. It, it pushes people out of their comfort zone. But then I think he gets like a rave review and suddenly he's the talk of the town. And now he's got the third greatest restaurant in the history of earth or some shit. So, um, <laughs> I uh, I I loved this episode. I loved this chef. Uh, you know, I grew up in an Italian family. Uh, I often talk about my nana and her Italian cooking, and you know, you don't get much. She 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 was not exactly a chef, but she she had her dishes, and those dishes always had a lot of sentimental uh, attachment, a lot of memory for me. So the this was a fun episode for me to watch. What are some of the things that stood out to you in this episode? Uh, one of the big things was the, the very opening that, uh, that little story about uh, the 10,000 pounds of Parmesan that, uh, that were damaged in a, in a storm. And he had to, he created a new risotto dish that, centered around Parmesan and ended up saving the business. That's a great story. That That is an excellent story. And again, another situation where you have to sort of think on your feet and come up with something sort of ingenious. Uh, I actually forgot about that. So you mentioned it. Um, and then the dish he creates, you know, with that sort of lattice, uh, Parmesan there on top of the uh, on top of the, the, the Parmesan. The Parmesan three ways. Yeah, it looked delicious. It absolutely uh, looked looked like a delectable dish. Um, I have to say, and and maybe this is you know this is just me, but where I struggled with every single one of these episodes is, and and I do this a lot with with uh, cooking shows. I don't care about the people as much. I'm interested in their story to a degree, but there comes a point where I'm just like, I'm only watching this because you make awesome food. <laughs> I'm not so much interested in you. Uh, and I felt like Massimo, because of his charisma and his, his energy was fine. But as we get into some of these other chefs, I was like, can we go back to, I felt like there was too much emphasis on their history and their personality and not enough emphasis on the food. And it's, and, and these episodes are sort of hit or miss for me. Uh, what did you think about that? Or, or were you, or were you very much engaged by everyone's story? Well, that's what uh, I was talking about earlier when I said this was very much a documentary. Uh, normally, <laughs> you know, we watch food shows, Chopped, Top Chef, uh, Kitchen Nightmares, and Hell's Kitchen, uh, and you know, we look for the food, we look for the drama, we're looking for, we're looking to be in the moment. Whereas this is really a uh, thirty to forty minute uh, presentation of some guy that a bunch of food critics fawn over and they want us to know how special he is. And being from the industry, it's, it's nice to see some of the top chefs 
people that are considered the top chefs in the world going through some of the same issues I went with when I was cooking. I have to say, and you hit on a very good point there, the struggle was real for a lot of these folks. They didn't just, you know, fall out of a tree and instantly create a, you know, a Michelin star restaurant. Uh, And I think in a couple of these cases, they talked about going broke. They talked about, you know, I, uh, if you're playing the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network home game, every time we draw, we draw a reference to wrestling, take a drink. It very much reminds me (laughs) of, it very much reminds me of the story of WrestleMania where, had the original WrestleMania not worked, the WWF was going out of business. Um, that there's just, that was it. This was either it was all or nothing. And you get a sense of that with a couple of these chefs, where they threw their life's blood and everything they had into creating these restaurants. And if they if they didn't work, that was it. They were done. Um, and in some cases, that's exactly what happened. You know, they would create a restaurant, it would go belly up, and they would have to go do something else for a while and then come back and try again. Uh, it, it speaks to the, the spirit of, uh, of entrepreneurship and taking chances and whatnot, and I found that to be inspirational. Oh, definitely. Uh, with, with Massimo, definitely so. The, the first restaurant, it didn't exactly go under. It was the one where... Uh, he ended up becoming a bit of a social pariah in his own town because he took Mama's recipes and did them differently. And from what I understand, that's a huge no-no to Italians. Right. We we are nothing uh, if not a stubborn people. Oh yeah, my wife's Italian. I know. <laughs> been married. Been married. For, uh, Four years, she still will not let me cook Italian for her. It's the only thing I, I am a, forbidden from making. <laughs> I have a my best friend is very much like that. There's only one way to make sauce. If you make it another way, you're wrong. Um, before we move on, <laughs> before we move on to the next one, I just want to give you the final word here. Anything about this episode uh, you want to uh, you want to talk about? Anything left unsaid? I found it interesting that out of all the chefs, he was the only one that uh, not only was he married, but his wife was his business partner. Uh, the the story about how they met, how they got together, and then him calling her up at like three in the morning in New York to propose to her right before his restaurant <laughs> opened. <laughs> yeah. It's, that to me was it, – Again, it, it, I always – as somebody who works in the field of, of mental health, you know, psychology, I always find it interesting that, you know, you have these creative geniuses who have just no clue how to interact with other people. Yeah. It's just, you know, that, that he has this sort of frenetic manic, you know, way of thinking that it would make sense to him that as he has this thought, yeah, sure. Call up at three o'clock in the morning and propose to her. It makes total sense. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I definitely identified with the story of them being at the movies. They leave the movies. She goes, how'd you like it? And he goes, I don't know. I didn't pay attention. I was trying to figure out how to do this. Right. <laughs> that was great. All right. Episode two, we have Dan Baba and the Blue Hill Restaurant at Stone Barns in New York City, baby. New York City. 
Um, now, I, like I said, I feel like I've heard of Dan Barber before. And where I remember Dan Barber from, I could not tell you. But I think he's I have involved watched... with Blue Apron. Okay, and maybe that's it. But um, I have watched a lot of uh, documentaries about the food industry and, you know, how we went from farm to table to processed and preserved and how we're, we're trying to go back now to that because um, of the health crisis, quote unquote, in this country where we've overstuffed ourselves on processed foods and we have rampant diabetes and obesity. And as somebody who has struggled with weight since high school, uh, this, this, you know, this is something I really did a deep dive into a few years ago, reading books, watching documentaries, the whole nine yards. So um, other than Massimo, I really enjoyed this episode because there's this focus on, Dan Barber as the chef really focusing on ingredients and making sure he had the freshest, most seasonal ingredients and pushing that idea of, you know, farm to table, which is not easy, obviously, especially in this go-go world, you know, where you've got uh, jobs and kids and some of these things can just be unforgiving. We all don't just don't have, sometimes the opportunity to grow a garden in our backyard and make fresh food. And so you, you sometimes you have to make compromises, but I'm at least intrigued and inspired by those that do push themselves and, and put, and put that message forward. So I, well, well, Dan's food in and of itself, maybe not was, you know, as far as my personal tastes go, might not have been as appealing as, say, Massimo's or Magnus's or Ben Shuri's, which we'll talk about as, as we go forward. But as far as pushing an ideal and maintaining a sense of integrity within the world of cooking, uh, I, was, I was excited by what I was seeing. I, enjoy, I very much enjoyed this episode. Uh, what did you think of Mr. Baba? I found it very interesting. It was very refreshing to to not only see uh, a chef struggle in the kitchen itself, but also uh, to be that involved with the production and cultivation of his own ingredients. Uh, he, he His story is one of uh, having this farm. He's like, okay, I'll grow the vegetables. I'll use the produce in my kitchen. And then he's like, well, I can't just have this because eventually all the nutrients will run out. So I need to get some livestock to create the fertilizer. Oh, I got this livestock now. Okay, I'll use the protein. And it's it's one thing after another. Uh, are you familiar with South Park at all? I am. I love that show. Uh, remember the episode where uh, Cartman gets a, uh, a theme park? <laughs> yes. That Nobody can basically, come in. Basically, that episode is the is the uh, story of of, <laughs> of of Ben minus the no one can come in part. Really? Okay. Well, because as he found out, okay, I've got all this to myself. 
oh, wait, I need this. Okay, to do this, I need to do this. To do this, I need to do this. And it's an ever-evolving chain of events that culminates in uh, an end result that everyone enjoys. The standout moment, believe it or not, for me in this entire episode, um, I, you know, with my memory being what it is, it's not great. <laughs> so if something, if I can actually remember something in detail, I know it, it was truly meaningful to me. And the one part of this that truly stood out to me, you know, for the longest time I've been heavy on protein and I've, I've uh, abandoned in a lot of ways uh, grain in my diet. Um, you know, I read books like Wheat Belly and, uh, you know, this Gary Taubes is this is why we get fat and all that. And there's, this, you know, there's, there's definitely a almost religious philosophy of you want to stick with your grain, you want to stick with your proteins and your leafy vegetables and stay away from your grains. Of course, there's also equally fervent uh, religious philosophy out there of you want to stay away from your proteins and stick with your grains and your leafy greens, but that's a whole other category. It's a whole other podcast. In any case, um, I, so I'm not well, – number one, I've never been a big fan of bread. Uh, you know, just it just got in the way of the meat. That's the problem, see? <laughs> you're, stand, you're standing between me and my burger, you, you bread you. Uh, but he he bakes this fresh bread, and he and he addresses the fact that Yes, the bread that you buy in the grocery store for the most part is shit. But if you, you know, there are there are grains, there are natural uh, ingredients that you can make fresh bread with, and it's perfectly healthy and it's delicious. And he actually bakes uh, two people this bread, and he's like showing them something on the iPad. And I remember thinking to myself, like, you know, for a guy who's not a fan of bread, that looks delicious. Oh yeah, it's it's amazing how uh, someone can craft food in a way that you would not have thought uh, palatable. Yeah, it's. I mean, I looked at that bread and I'm like, I want to smell it, I want to touch it, I want to taste it. The very similar making. I've had a very sim. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh no. the ability to make your own bread is just a, it's a, uh, my father actually, uh, was a bagel baker, uh, as I was growing up and I learned that from him and it's, it's not the same as the bread that, uh, that Ben makes, but the, the experience of taking all these different bits and putting it together into something, you, you get a sense of pride for it and it just tastes that much better. And a very similar experience when I watched Michael Pollan's Cooked, because you know that gets broken up into the elements of cooking. So you have fire, you have air, and the air episode is the baking episode. And I remember thinking to myself, like, oh, I'm not into this at all. <laughs> I uh, I don't care. You know, the fire episode was awesome. I don't care for this bread episode. And I had a friend of mine who watched it before I got a chance to, and he goes, don't be so sure you're not going to like it. Because I guarantee you, you'll have the same reaction that I did, which is it's going to look so good to you that you're actually going to want to eat the bread. And he was not wrong. So 
it you know you eat you definitely eat with your eyes um anything else on dan barber left unsaid that you want to address uh if he really is involved with blue apron i think that's probably the most inspired move a professional chef could ever go into because you're you're so confident in your craft and so passionate about farm to table that you're goading those who would come to your restaurant and pay obscene amounts of money for your food to do it at home and learn to do it themselves. You know, my wife and I have actually um, been toying around with the idea of doing one of these deals where, you know, they send you a box of ingredients and you make, uh, and you make food like that. And we were looking at that. We actually were looking at blue apron so I'm actually I'm Googling it now to see if he's involved with that, if that's true. Blue Apron. Green Acres is the place to be. Uh, let's see here. Dan Barber, Blue Apron. Uh, the Google machine's running a little slow tonight. Uh, all right. Well, this, well, this warms up. Let's go ahead. Now, let, let, let's talk about this for just one second here. Francis Malman. Now, it could have been the fact that I was having – it could have been the fact that I was tired, I was not feeling well, it was dark out, and there were wolves after me. But I did not like this fellow. And I think of all the episodes, I just I, – I didn't – I don't know. I, I struggled with, his, with, with this guy, and I think, I think part of it was – there comes a point where he's like talking about not, you know, he has a kid with this woman and he's like, yeah, well, we don't live together. And then he starts talking about like, he can't stay in one place. And like, this is where the pendulum swings too far. One in one direction. Well, you're so artsy. You're so creative that you can't handle normal human relationships. To the, to, to the detriment of those involved with you. And it's like, I get that you're a craftsman. And, and I, one of the shows I really enjoy is uh, Man Fire Food. Um, again, I'm a big fan of, big fan of grilling. And, I lo- and, and this guy's enthusiasm. I don't know if you've ever seen the show before. But, you know, mm-hmm. he, uh, he, goes, he goes to all these different places. And, you know, they build these elaborate fires and do all this awesome grilling. And there was a little bit of that in this episode as well. And I dug it, but it was like, okay, when he was, when he wasn't grilling fresh meat on a, on, you know, on a, on a stick somewhere out in the, you know, in the far reaches of, of the, of the world, it would go back to, yeah, I can't deal with people. I don't have time for this sort of thing. I was like, all right, sushi, <laughs> take it easy. That poor child you brought into this world. So, I don't know. Am I being a little too hard on the beaver? What do you, what do you think? Uh, that's That was one of the sticking points about this guy, too. And I really wanted to like him because of the way the episode opened up with the, the wood-burning grill because that was one of my uh, favorite memories from when I cooked professionally. I worked for a restaurant where we had one of those wood-burning grills. And just to to, to roll up to the restaurant... It, the smell of the of the of the burning wood would just permeate everywhere, and it, it mixed with the smell of the cooking meat, and it, it just 
got you going. Mm-hmm. And uh, we would actually fight each other sometimes to be the ones to, <laughs> to start the first fire of the day. <laughs> There's something primal about starting a fire. We, uh, oh yeah. We used to, we used to have one of those like fire pits in the backyard. And I remember the first couple of times I did it, I was like, wow, this is, this, this is fun. Like, I never thought of myself as somebody who would have fun starting a fire in a fire pit. But, you know, I, I guess it's a sign that some, some, to some degree, a sign of maturity, a sign of, you know, getting older, you know, it can't all be rock concerts and uh, whatnot. You know, there was a pride in owning my own home and having a fire pit in the backyard and starting a fire and, you know, being able to use it to do stuff. Um, and so I'm with you there. There's an enthusiasm, a very primal enthusiasm for that sort of thing. And, and then this guy would fucking talk again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then he'd talk and then, and then he would talk about how he lived his life and I'm, I'm instantly taken out. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely like, you know, like one of those dates where he's just like, you're so pretty, please stop talking. Um, <laughs> I don't remember a single fucking thing he cooked in this episode. And again, I'm going to, I'm not going to blame uh, David Gelb or, or Francis Malman for that. That might be my own fault. I was, I was not in a good way the night that I watched this. But I mean, for, for if you can these, rec- the food was an afterthought. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it really was. They they really wanted to 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 highlight these kooky guys who have elevated the art of culinary to a new level. They wanted to you know to have the food critics that have given them their their great reviews to talk about them, talk about the person, the food is somewhat secondary. Like at the end they show you all the dishes that he that he's famous for as if to go, Oh yeah, and he makes food. <laughs> In case you forgot what you were watching, here's a bunch of shit he cooked. Um none of which stood out to me. Did any of his food stand out to you? Because uh, like I said, I I might not have just been paying close enough attention. I might have gotten to a point where I said, I, I need to go to bed. I'm done with this. So I don't, I don't no, want none, it. None just, of his dishes. Okay. Okay. So it's not just me then. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Frost. I don't know if I ever, if I ever end up in Argentina, uh, you know, I, I think I would have to go to his restaurant just because I'm sure it's delicious. I'm sure it's wonderful, but this episode didn't really do a lot for, you know, like, you know, going back to Massimo, I want to go to Modena, Italy and, and go to Osteria Frances- Francescana. This next one we're going to talk about Nikki Akiyama, uh, you know, in, in Kana in Los Angeles. Yeah. Hell yeah. I want to go eat there. Um, you know, Magnus Nilsson, uh, in, in Jarpen, Sweden. Hell yeah. I want to eat at his restaurant. You know, this guy, I didn't have that hell yeah feeling when, when this was all yeah. said and done. Um, yeah. With him, it was more episode. of a hell yeah. I want to do that. Yeah. Uh, episode four, Nikki Nakayama, uh, in, in Kana restaurant in Los Angeles. And, uh, I liked her story. You know, we finally get a, we finally get to, to, from the first episode, another story where I could absolutely see, you know, pick up what she was putting down. 
You know, I could see where she was coming from. Um, a little stereotypical in the, you know, in the sense that, oh, the poor Asian girl, you know, you you can't do what the men do. You know, I have expected there to be a scene where her father's making a walk behind her or some sh- behind him or some shit. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, I have to say, you know, the human spirit and the desire to you know, defy the odds and push past the stereotypes and everything. Um, I was very much inspired by her. And she made some damn fine-looking food. Like, I don't go out of my way to eat sea urchin. But oh, yeah, the way it was presented was amazing. Yeah, very artistic. I I really dug it. Um, What did you think of this episode? I like the story. It's just, it felt a little token, if, uh, if that makes sense. It, she ticked sure. a lot of boxes to make people happy. Woman, check. Minority, check. Comes out <laughs> ahead in the end, check. Uh, you know, oppressive backstory, check. There's, you expected her so to be car- a bunch of women protesting Donald Trump, carrying her on her shoulders, you know, over the streets of Los Angeles. That's what we needed to see at the very end yeah, of it. Basically, I mean, even her attitude towards uh, people knowing that she's the one cooking their food. Mm-hmm. Uh, it. I understand her reasoning for doing it because she wants the food to speak for itself, but. I think we're at a a point in society where anyone can do great things in the kitchen. It's the end product that is the reflection of us. With all of the celebrity female chefs out there, is there still a prejudice in the kitchen against women? Because I I just... Oh, my God, yes. (laughs) Really? Talk to me about that for a moment. Let's let let let's put a hard break on this and talk to me about why. With with like again with with not just the Martha Stewart's, but I mean you have the one lady who does the uh, the uh, with the worst cooks in America show that's been on for like ten years now. You have Rachel Ray. You have the ninety-seven different women who have come out of Top Chef. And have gone on to do you know really great things, and yet there's still a prejudice. Talk to me about that. It has to do with <laughs> how we are in a kitchen. When I first started learning how to cook, uh, I actually learned from a female chef, and she did anything and everything to try and scare the crap out of me. Uh, one of the first things that she would talk about was how the the line of a restaurant is akin to uh, being in the belly of a submarine. It's small, it's cramped, everyone's heavily armed and pissed off. <laughs> okay. And there is uh, that that huge stigma that a woman can't hang with the men. You know, we're we're tough as nails, rough and tumble. We will, you know, we'll uh, shit talk each other. We'll 
pull pranks and they, you know, women can't handle it. And I've experienced that in the kitchen both ways. I've, I've experienced it where there's women that absolutely can, can go toe to toe with even the most (laughs) pissed off guy. And then there's the very fragile woman who just can't. And it, unfortunately, it's the ones that can't that are the most well-known. Interesting. In, uh, in school, uh, in school, when the, the story of the woman that can't, uh, there was a, uh, a professor who owned several restaurants uh, around Charleston. He was known for being a hard ass. If you screwed up, he let you know. He, she screwed up. He let her know. She went crying to the dean, and the professor was let go. Oh Jesus! Yeah. Well, that that's a problem. And that's unfortunate. You, you can't actually teach anybody anything anymore, lest someone get their feelings hurt. Right. But, but unfortunately, it's stories like that 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 are more out there than, you know, the women that can handle uh, an entire line by themselves, you know, get in the weeds and come out on top. I can't believe it's it's 2017 and and we are still dealing with that sort of thing. That's, that's fascinating to me. I will say this. I have a, my brother-in-law is a professional chef and uh, he's worked in one of the, uh, one of the best fine dining establishments in uh, Tampa. Uh, and he was telling me, he was like, yeah, the, the kitchen is just, I don't know if he used the word toxic, but I will. It's just sort of this toxic environment of everyone, everyone sort of existing as a raw nerve, <laughs> you know? And if you, he's not wrong. And if you, yeah. If you have thin skin you're not going to last. The environment is not conducive to people who are mamby-pambies, whether you're a man or a woman. And, and I found that fascinating that, you know, that that's a consistent thing in kitchens across, across the country or, you know, across the world. Um, anything else about the Nakayama episode? Uh, not really. I mean, it, it just like with, the Massimo's very inspiring story. Uh, it 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 gives you hope that with the right uh, emotional and financial backing that you two can uh, put forth. How to put it? It's cliche to say put forth your soul, but it's basically what we do when when you're cooking at a restaurant. That's your soul on a plate. All right and. And back to the raw nerve thing, we're we're constantly seeking the approval of the customer. Sure. All right. Admittedly, this next episode, the Ben Shuri episode, I was in and out of. Uh, I just it was just one of those days where I was on the couch and my my attention was. Uh, being pulled in a couple of different directions. So the parts that I remember, the parts that stood out to me 
for him talking about cooking with, you know, really trying to make something of natural Australian ingredients. And I know at one point he was cooking kangaroo. And and I tell you, as, as somebody who is a big fan of game meat, and, you know, if I ever was able to open up a restaurant, it would absolutely be a game meat restaurant. I was like, yes, cook more kangaroo. Outstanding. What was your uh, take on Mr. Ben Shuri in this episode? What did you like? What didn't you like? Uh, you know, again, with my attention being not really where it should have been with this episode. What, 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 what's some of the good stuff I missed here? This one was the one that, uh, that talks about the overarching fear of going broke and going under. Uh, Mm -hmm. Part of his story was buying a restaurant that was already failing and then racking up I think he said $150,000 worth of debt to his vendors because he like all like like all great chefs would not sacrifice his vision for something that's stable in a restaurant where no one was coming. And what was he trying? What was he doing that, that what was he doing that wasn't working initially? Um, in other words, what what was the problem that was causing him to lose money initially? From what I remember, he just said nobody was coming to the restaurant. Uh, they would okay. they would get up early in the morning, they'd prep the line, they'd open the doors for dinner, and crickets. <laughs> <coughs> That's heartbreaking. So what turned it around yeah. for him? Uh <laughs> On Tuesdays, a, a notoriously slow day for restaurants, he turned that into one of his best days by being completely experimental. I think that's where he said he started cooking with the kangaroo because there was no there's no cookbook for kangaroo. There's no you can't Google how to cook kangaroo. So he got inventive and Tuesdays was his day to to cut loose and I I think the one food critic uh that they spotlighted for his episode was like, yeah, when you go in on Tuesdays, your life is in the hands of God. (laughs) Okay. And I guess that the word got out that Tuesdays is fun days and, and the popularity blossomed out of that. Yeah. And I, I, I can only gather that what worked made it onto the menu. What didn't work (laughs) went back to the drawing board. It's sure. not dropped completely. This is, this is the worst tasting kangaroo I've ever had. Um, <laughs> Tasmanian devil, are you crazy? Um, okay. I, I, I don't have a lot of input on this one other than ID kangaroo. Sure, absolutely. Um, I, 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 Australia is on the list of places I want to go. His restaurant is definitely one I would check out. And that's really my only input into this episode. Um so with that being said, that takes us to our final episode, uh, Mr. Awesome Name, Magnus Nilsson yeah. from Joppen, Sweden. And uh, <laughs> this was one where my wife was on the couch, and at the end of it, I just read her everything that, you know, that they were spotlighting at the end. I was like, this looks awesome and has some of the worst names I've ever, like, you know, Grouse. 
there's, there was a couple of oh, tasty paste. That was another one. I think that's something, something you'd sell a kid. But uh, I liked his story. You know, he uh, he's just sort of this uncompromising. Th- <laughs> they said at the beginning of the episode, and I thought this was hilarious. They're like, nobody comes here. So there's really nobody around. There's, there's no influence. There's no, there's no one around to tell you, well, you're doing it wrong or you should do it a different way. And he's just making these traditional dishes the way he wants to do them. And the other thing I thought was really fascinating about this, sort of taking it back to the conversation about Dan Barber, is you know he's using local ingredients in an unforgiving, frigid wasteland where nothing grows half the year. And so he, you know, and we talk about the word preservative, you know, and, and it's, just got an, it's got this evil connotation to it, but it comes out of necessity. It comes out of the fact that there are parts of this world where you had to store food for the winter. And so the idea of preserving food isn't inherently bad. It's all in how you do it. So do you use this, you know, chemical that, you know, maybe in large quantities harmful to you? Or do you do it in this more traditional way, you know, where they're salting meat and they're jarring food and storing it in a root cellar? Uh, I was really <laughs> fascinated by that. I was fascinated by all of that because, again, it is a reminder. Go ahead. You there? No, 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 go ahead. You, you started to oh. chime in with something. Go ahead. Oh, uh, I, I, I was, I started laughing because I wanted to say, you know, why'd you say the same thing twice? <laughs> you know, do you want to use a chemical to preserve the food, or do you want to use a chemical to res- to preserve the food? <laughs> Fair enough. Because that's what salt, um, the salt is. It's a nice chemical formula and used to preserve the food. <laughs> touche, sir. Touche. Um. But I, but I like that. I mean, maybe maybe my my thought about this is wrong, but I feel like there was a very natural uh, way of preserving the food that isn't terrible versus our modern way of preserving food, you know, to make it last on store shelves, you know, ad infinitum, which can be terrible. I, I, at least that's what I've seen in every documentary I've watched. Um, oh, yeah. Well, uh, sure. when, they, when they showed his root cellar, I'm like, oh, my God, I would – Kill for a root cellar. <laughs> See, it's great, wasn't it? Uh, what do you think of this? Episode? Oh yeah, I thought it was great. Uh, it in a in a world where the the biggest thing used to be the gastro pubs, where food was deconstructed or presented in ways that uh, you know the the chef's coat was more of a lab coat when you're presented something uh, like Caesar salad and liquidized in different test tubes and you're, you have to eat them in a certain way to understand it. This guy goes all the way back to, to how, you know, the pilgrim used to have to do stuff to survive. Right. Something, something that was done out of necessity. He does not just to honor tradition, but also to, simplify his craft. 
Yeah, I was re- I was really into it. I liked what the the one teacher was saying about him. You know, everyone reads cookbooks. Yeah. Uh, but he but he would just create things and experiment, and he didn't want to be you know uh, pushed into a corner or boxed in by other people's ideas. He wanted to create something from his own imagination. And I tell you, I think that's the thing I enjoy most about watching a lot of these cooking shows is when, you know, you're, you're given the task of creating something out of the ether and people come up with some wickedly fun ideas. Um, one of the things about Top Chef is, you know, you, at the beginning of the season, you know, you, they, you can really separate the wheat from the chaff in the, in the sense that you have these really, really talented people, you know, who, who excel at the top of the season and you know the other ones are going to get cut because they're just like, I came up with ham and cheese. It's like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> and then the flip side of that is at the end of the season, people are just burnt the fuck out. <laughs> so you have these very creative people who are just like, yeah, I went with the ham and cheese too now because I can't. I just got eight weeks of this. Ugh. You know? Um but there's always somebody out there who comes up with this wicked, you know, these, these crazy ideas. Um, so this was, this episode was a lot of fun and it's definitely a restaurant that if I can ever get to Sweden, I would, I would check out. What's the, uh, give me the final word here, sir, um, on this episode and really in general on chef's table, as we say on the Rattle and Broadcasting Network, take me home, baby, take me home. Uh, one of the, the quotes that I definitely took away from this was when he talked about how he almost uh, – I can't remember if it was him or if it was Kay who uh, basically was planning to give up on cooking, the, the, the notion that if all you do is make someone else's dish, what are you doing? And I right. think that's that's – for me, that's part of the reason why I got out because I I lost my inspiration. Uh, cooking here in in kitchens in America, you have a set menu, a set recipe, a set plating. You can't even be unique in that. Uh, with Mosmo, oops, I dropped the lemon tart. Something like that happened in a in a U.S. kitchen these days. No, the the waiter would go out and apologize, saying, "Oh, we we only have one lemon tart now." And <laughs> that was that was always my passion in cooking, not just creating the dish, but using the the plate as my canvas and creating this very artistic thing that you see it and instantly you're, you know, you want this. Do you still cook at home? Are you into creating at home now that you have sort of an open canvas to play on? Or do you just kind oh, God, of, yeah. you know, okay. <laughs> you, you, you've escaped Aside the plantation Italian, and now you're my free, My wife huh? doesn't come in. <laughs> Very good. It's, you know, I, I said, whatever you, I always encourage people because, you know, sort of take this uh, all the way back around again. Um, people find out in my profession or in my, my social life that I do podcasts. And first of all, I always love the reaction to that because it's like alchemy to them. It's like, you do podcasts? How? <laughs> like, I fucking dial a number and I just talk. That's just not that hard. Um, but, you know, but to people who I guess are not used to it or are just not, like, tech savvy, they, uh, this, this is just magic. 
And I say, you know, and I say, mm-hmm. I'm like, look, podcast, podcasting is, is my creativity. This is my outlet. Uh, this is, this is how I'm able to express myself so that I don't go crazy. And everyone should have that in their life. There should be a place for them to just let their hair down and experiment and express themselves and get that kind of energy out of their system, uh, you know, so, so that they can redirect the rest of their energy into other things in life, you know, whether it's family or your profession or what have you. Now, if you're lucky enough to be able to express yourself in your profession, well, hot damn, aren't you, you know, the bee's knees. But for a lot of us, we have jobs, and then what do you do with the rest of your time? Um, and I think, you know, for those people who are talented enough and lucky enough to be, uh, you know, artistic in the kitchen, I, I, you know, I envy folks like yourself and, you know, and the, and the people in Chef's Table because, you, you know, you're really able to – uh, you're able to express your creativity in something that, uh, you know, like who doesn't like to eat? You know what I mean? It, we all have to eat. You know, we, we got we to gotta live. We got to eat. And you're able to take that sort of mundane activity and, and make it wonderful. Um, so I applaud you. Um, in general, Chef's Table I thought was fun. I'm anxious to see um, uh, check out season two so later on in the year, and I know season three just dropped on Netflix not that long ago. They're all six episodes, and I think there's a Chef's Table France that's four episodes long. So, at some point in the future on the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network, we'll uh, we'll do more of these Chef's Table seasons. But um, for the time being, I think we have uh, drawn this conversation to a close. Mr. Roth, I want to thank you for being on here and talking about this with me. Did you have fun tonight? Was this enjoyable for you? Oh, this was a lot of fun. <laughs> talking <laughs> about uh, when, whenever you're talking about your passion, it's easy to get kind of wrapped up in it. And uh, I, I enjoy the, the opportunity to, to, to share my passion with others and hopefully impart on them the, the spark to to go on their own journey, whether it be with cooking or with podcasting or uh, whatever whatever outlet they feel they can tap into. So I'll have to tap you again when uh, when we tackle these uh, chef season chef table seasons in the future. Oh, I'll be here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, <clears throat> Real quick, uh, at the end of every one of my podcasts, we, uh, I allow my guests and I, you know, I go for myself the opportunity to plug any projects you're involved with or ways to contact you. You know, some people, they're just like, I'm on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> but other, other people have some other stuff going on. So I'm going to go ahead and give, uh, just throw you the floor here. Uh, if there's anything you would like to plug, even if it's a service that you're passionate about or whatever it is you want people to know about, uh, this is your time to just quick do uh, some plugs here, let people know, and then I'll do my thing, and then I think we'll be out. Well, I'm not doing anything personally. Uh, I mentioned that I went to uh, a culinary college called Johnson & Wales 
you don't have to go to a big university to get the kind of experiences that I had. Uh, I started out very young. I fell into cooking and I just, I fell in love. I found my passion, but I knew I needed proper training. You can find cooking classes anywhere. Don't, don't be afraid to try something new just because you think it might not taste good, you think you might look silly doing it. Just get out and try it. Try something new. Uh, I'm on Twitter. <laughs> uh, uh, I've had that Twitter since Twitter started, and uh, I called myself Chef M80. Okay. All it, right. It, it was um, weird. <laughs> all right. Uh, once again, thank you for being on. I, uh, I this year has been an interesting one because when I when I started opening up the my Blog Talk Radio account to, uh, for other people to do shows, it was a very kind of closed system of people that I would get involved with. It was basically the guys I knew from 401 Mania. Um, this year has just, I sort of just kind of opened up the doors and I'm like, anyone wants to talk to me about anything at all, fucking I'm open. You know, the, the, uh, the limitations are, are off the table. And it's funny. I, I didn't think I would get people interested and wanting to, but you and a coworker of mine, people have been knocking on my door. Fuck the, the one time I said, Hey, I, anybody up for, you know, doing some TV parties and I got bombarded. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, me. What about me, boss? So, uh, I'm excited about this year and hearing, uh, giving, uh, more people an opportunity to come on and talk, you know, and give, give voice to people who would not have normally, uh, going on a podcast you know they just wouldn't have thought about it so i'm glad i'm able to give people that opportunity in my little my little corner of the internet and speaking of my little corner of the internet uh in the archives on the rattle and broadcasting network on source material hosted by the late the uh the great jesse starcher we discussed batman 66 volume one uh wherein i also did a mini review of the lego batman movie uh, of course, tonight was TV party, uh, chef's table. Uh, tomorrow night on the Metal Hammer of Doom, we've got uh, my friend Frank Morosky from high school. We were in a band together. He, of course, is in a natural band now, one that's, you know, had success. <laughs> it's called If He Dies and their album Beneath the Waves. We're going to go ahead and review that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Nine o'clock, assuming Mr. Cooper actually gets out of work on time. If He Dies Beneath the Waves, Metal Hammer of Doom. And then on trial this week, myself and Sean Comer, we will be putting Catwoman with Halle Berry on trial. I will be defending. Sean will be prosecuting. And I will show the world that there is something defensible about Halle Berry's Catwoman, besides the fact that she has a very nice chest. So that's what we got going on. This week on the old network. Uh, next week, we've got uh, the TV party tonight. A week from tonight, Pat Mullen will be back on. We'll be doing some sex and drugs and rock and roll from good old Dennis Leary. Uh, further celebrating 
Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. The Metal Hammer of Doom will be reviewing Steel Panther's Lower the Bar. And uh, on and on Thursday, because Winfrey made me, we're going to review the movie Ink. I know nothing about this movie, but uh, a lot of, a lot of people lined up when I threw that idea out there to make me watch some shit I would never watch. So <laughs> well, he's, we're going to watch Ink and review it. And then uh, we have a big show on Friday. Uh, it's the announcement of Wolverine Week and our character discussion in celebration in celebration of the movie Logan, uh, which will be coming out that day, and we'll be discussing all things Wolverine the following week. So we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. Uh, Again, I want to thank Mark Roth for coming on, and we will see you next week. Be well, be safe, and behave.